Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the new book, Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism, Jason Gilmore from Utah State University and Chuck Rowling from the University of Nebraska at Kearney detailed the various ways that Trump strategically altered and exploited the discourse of American exceptionalism to elevate not the nation, but himself, personally, professionally, and politically. They call this Trump's Exceptional Me Strategy, and they document how it made Trump different from every president in modern American history. So we bring in now Jason Gilmore, who's an associate professor of global communication at Utah State University. His research examines the strategic creation, dissemination, and effects of potent national and international ideas such as American exceptionalism, exceptionalism rather, patriotism, and anti-Americanism. He's published extensively on the history of American exceptionalism in the American presidency. Jason Gilmore, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, Chuck Rowling is an associate professor of political science at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. His research primarily explores the relationship between officials, the press, and the public in the context of U.S. US foreign policy, focusing on the role that uh, national identity plays in shaping these interactions. Uh, Chuck Rowling, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. So let me start with you, Jason Gilmore. Uh, how did this start? You study American exceptionalism, and uh, what, did you start noticing candidate uh, Trump uh, approach this in a different way? How did this begin? Um, yeah, I mean, so leading into this, um, I've done extensive research with Chuck um, uh, on uh, Amer- this notion of American exceptionalism within the American presidency. Um and so in 2016, uh, Trump becomes the president. We had already, I think, been watching him as a president or as a candidate for a while, um, but just kind of offhand. But once he became president, he kind of fell within the purview of our study. And so we started looking at that, that same language. The interesting thing was, was to start looking at the language of American exceptionalism was quite easy. Um, you know, I've been doing this since my dissertation. Um, so it was very easy to kind of identify and look for this language within his speeches. Um, but because um, I was keen to this, this language, I started picking up on something that was quite different about uh, how Trump had done it. You know, I had published about <clears throat> how every other president since Truman had talked about this. Um, so it just started to become readily apparent that he was he was using this concept in a very different way. So, Chuck Rowling, um, research must have been interesting. I, I know, at least in part, for Jason Gilmore, happened to attend some rallies. Uh, is that was that part of the research? Yeah. So, so we were, you know, uh, fortunate enough, I guess you could say, uh, to be able to attend uh, one of his rallies in in Iowa, and this was. Boy, I think a few weeks before COVID really hit, and uh, so you know we attended a rally in Des Moines, um, and you know we were there really to observe. Um, we interacted with some people, um, and we wanted to take in, I guess, um, the energy and you know all the 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 dynamics surrounding those those rallies, which you know we'd been watching and, and been hearing about, and it was you know it was impactful for us. It certainly. Uh, I think gave us an added perspective for the book, uh, reinforced a lot of the things we already sort of uh, were thinking and had been writing about. Um, and then it was just, you know, personally for, for the two of us, you know, we are quite a ways apart from each other. We don't see each other as much as we'd like. So to be able to experience that together was pretty, was pretty powerful as well. 
So, Jason Gilmore, uh, tell us about American exceptionalism, uh, you know, the standard version. You say every president since Truman, uh, Republicans and Democrats have uh, been talking about this. Yeah, I think um, it's language that's very, uh, that uh, Americans are very attuned to. Um, You know, we break it down into uh, kind of explicit and implicit references to American exceptionalism, but it's it's what we've heard all our lives, right? That the United States is a is a singular, unique um, uh, country unto the world. That we have something special to bring to the world. Um, since the end of World War II, uh, we've U.S. presidents have really uh, kind of gone, you know, all in on the notion that we are, uh, in fact, a superior nation. Um, that started, I think, to a certain extent to counterbalance um, the the influence of the Soviet Union for so many years. It was, you know, to say that we are the moral, morally superior nation in the world uh, compared to the Soviet Union. Um, and so the language of this is just infused in how American presidents talk about the United States. We're a singular, superior, at times, uh, we've, they've spoken about it as a God-favored nation, one that should lead the world, um, and one that should stand as an example for the world to follow. And so the language of this uh, has been embedded in the American presidency since since Washington and before. Right? In fact, the idea of American exceptionalism was born before the nation was actually a nation itself. Right? It came from the, the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, when they said that, you know, this kind of new Puritan nation, or sorry, this new Puritan community would stand as an example. Um, and that was kind of in, enveloped and infused into the way, way Americans speak about it. But really, post-World War II, we see a shift. Right? We see the United States emerge as one of the two superpowers. Um, and so the way presidents speak about it is much more robust. And so since Truman, you see them, um, you know, waxing philosophical and finding creative ways to talk about the United States as this, you know, shining city upon a hill. Um, so it's, it's been infused in how, uh, you know, presidents and politicians uh, uh, speak about the nation, but it's also the reason they do that is because it's infused in the way Americans speak about the nation, right? So the reason presidents talk about this is because they know it resonates with the American public. Um, and in fact, they, they, the American presidency has kind of become this iconic defender, right? The American people look to the president to be the defender of American exceptionalism uh, before the world. So yeah, it's, it's language that's um, readily available anytime you, you listen to a politician, you know, to date. Uh, Chuck Rowling, I think this has been... Uh, I've especially associated this idea of American exceptionalism with Republicans of late. Uh, for example, many Republicans attack Barack Obama for not not expressing this idea sufficiently. Yeah, I mean, and, and you could even go back. I mean, I would I would say, you know, so one of the tasks that I uh, I took on for part of this book was was to go back and read all of these speeches, major speeches from Truman to the present, and it was you know, it was fascinating to do this. Um, you know, to some extent, there was continuity. So, Democrat or Republican, um, you know, you, you, you saw this continuity across those presidencies. 
Um, you know, so for some of these presidents, I would I would identify, you know, say Truman was one who was a prolific, um, you know, user of these these terms, these uh, you know these ideas. Uh, Reagan was another, um, but you know, the the there was a, a real turning point, and I, I would say that it, it occurs primarily after Reagan, um, and then really escalates um, when Obama comes into office, where uh, you know almost you know despite what what Obama did and said, I mean, one of the things that we found in our research was Obama uh, invoked American exceptionalism more than anybody before him. Uh, if there was one who embraced this concept, you know, uh, more than anyone else, it was, it was Obama. But at the same time, he was certainly challenged. Um, you know, some of the challenges were that he doesn't say it enough, but others were just he doesn't believe it. Um, and so this is something that we, you know, we wrote about. We had we had a piece that we published about this um, a few years back. And you know, we, what we were finding was that Republicans were were, were seeking to and, and really succeeding in owning this this idea, uh, which is precisely why it, it was so fascinating to see Trump come onto the scene and um, challenge these ideas. Uh, this was something that was kind of a hallmark of Republican politics. Uh, so, Jason Gilmore, there's an interesting incident in the, in the book. You recounted the book. Uh, this is before Donald Trump was announced as a candidate. He went, I think this was in Texas, and uh, he was asked about American exceptionalism. I, I think essentially uh, being asked to, you know, embrace it, uh, establish his bona fides on, on this. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating story and something I think his his campaign has tried to to deny since. Um, this is a month, month and a half before he he declares his uh, candidacy. You know the the famed moment when he comes down the escalator, um, and he's at a, a Tea Party pack um, meeting, and he's asked the the exact language that the Republicans have been teeing up for their next standard bearer um, for the 2016 election, which is. What do you think about American exceptionalism, and how are we going to continue to safeguard American exceptionalism moving forward? It was a softball question, um, and uh, Trump gave the most unexpected answer possible. I don't, I don't like the term. I never liked it. I think it's bad for us to tell the rest of the world that we're better than them. You know, it just completely comes out and rejects this notion of American exceptionalism. Um, which again, the the Republican Party had spent so much time trying to to be the the owners of, um, and so he he says this, um, but he cues in at the end. I think something that's very telling, which is, uh, I'd like to make this country exceptional, right? So he said it's not nice, it's not good to say this. I don't really like the term, um, but I would like to make us exceptional. Um, as if it were in his power uh, to do so. Uh, and we'll get into to that about the book. Reflecting on it, it's interesting. I think the reason he rejected it is because he heard Obama talk about American exceptionalism so much that he was rejecting um, anything that Obama had championed. Um, and little did he know he was kind of stepping into or or, or kind of uh, dragging in the mud something that his party had wanted, uh, at least, you know, would want him to challenge moving forward, or I'm sorry, to champion moving forward. 
So, Chuck Rowling, before we'll go to a break and then we'll come back and, and outline uh, what you two gentlemen uh, describe as exceptional me strategy. Uh, but, Chuck Rowling, uh, this is just one uh, instance where candidate Trump uh, is going against what is seems like it had become calcified, uh, set in stone uh, Republican orthodoxy, uh, you know, going on to criticize, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush and uh, criticizing, uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, and it was very apparent and in, in just, you know, it's one thing to, to sort of watch on television some of these speeches or some of the rallies, but then to go in and actually read the text of what he was saying, it was fascinating to us. And this was a piece that I, I, I guess I would say that we um, kind of uh, maybe stumbled upon as we were working on this in that, um, you know, he was very much making it a priority to not just attack Democrats, which is, you know, customary for any presidential candidate, but he was also going after leaders, standard bearers within his own party. Um, you know, so, so not only was he sort of non-traditional or unique in his approach to the concept of American exceptionalism, something that his predecessors had, had never done, but he was also going after them directly. So you had mentioned George W. Bush. He certainly attacked you know, him for the Iraq War and, and other things, but Mitt Romney, John McCain, uh, and, and quite a few others. Uh, and, you know, we were trying to sort of understand that, and I think the broader appeal was he was, he was running as this, this outsider. Uh, and I think that plays up, you know, the idea that only an outsider could fix this mess, right? He said, I alone can fix this. Uh, in order for him to sort of say that and have people believe it, um, he had to, I think, also really emphasize how he was unique or different from everyone else. Well, let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back with uh, Jason Gilmore and uh, Chuck Rowling. They are authors of Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. Uh, more following this. This is Science by the Slice. In 1960, as the Cold War heated up, the U.S. Army launched Project Iceworm. The top-secret effort was aimed at building a network of mobile nuclear launch sites under the Greenland Ice Sheet. Hampered by blizzards and unstable ice conditions, the project, located at Camp Century, was canceled in 1966. A 1.3-kilometer-long ice core was extracted from the site and, until recently, was largely forgotten. USU geoscientist Tammy Rittenauer is among experts tapped to analyze the unusual sample, which is providing clues about the Earth's warming climate. Rittenauer says data from the sample reveals the Greenland ice sheet may be more sensitive to climate change than previously thought. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jason Gilmore, who's an associate professor of global communication at Utah State University, and Chuck Rowling, who's an associate professor of political science at University of Nebraska at Kearney. They're authors of a new book. It's called Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. So, uh, Jason Gilmore, uh, we've talked about American exceptionalism uh, going back, you know, at least well beyond Harry Truman. So you, you took it back to the founding, I guess, before the founding. Um, so uh, as we get into uh, what Donald Trump did with this, I guess the starting point is 
his assertion was, uh, no, we're not a shining city on a hill, right? We're uh, we're a mess right now. That's the starting point, I guess. Yeah, this is this is where he really breaks with um, his party, how they teed it up for him. Um, this is how how he breaks from you know from tradition is that he um, wants to paint a picture of the United States as not being exceptional. I mean, we we heard this throughout his whole campaign about how um, you know Barack Obama had had destroyed things and uh, you know how the nation um, how the military was in disarray you know, how everything had been ruined. And as Chuck was talking about, it wasn't just because of, of Democrats, right? What we found is that um, uh, drain the swamp um, it was never only about Democrats, right? It was about all, all politicians in, uh, in Washington. And so, um, so he would say that because of Bush, because of Republican presidents and, and Democratic presidents were in this exceptional mess. And so instead of um, talking about the United States um, during his campaign, so this is during his 2016 campaign, instead of talking about the nation as this exceptional country, he paints it as an unexceptional mess. Right? So that same language of it's a special place, it's superior, right? it's the greatest in the world, um, he he goes he doubles down on language of we're not we're falling behind you know other people are eating our lunch we're you know last in the world in everything um, and everybody's we're the laughing stock of the world you know one quote is that we are worldwide bad mm. so he, he he definitely sets up this 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 notion that we're in this completely unexceptional state of affairs that of course tees him up to to make the next argument that he alone can be uh, can make us exceptional again, and so we think of "Make America Great Again" that that slogan as really meaning "Make America Exceptional Again," mm-hmm. right? That's how most people, I think, read it. Uh, so, Chuck Rowling, before we go on to that next uh, next step in the strategy, um, th- this is a. Uh, I- I encountered this personally as surprising, uh, and I think a lot of people probably did because we're we're so used to politicians, uh, you, you know, towing to the line of American exceptionalism. I, I well remember an interview. I can't remember who it was, a journalist of some kind. I think it was, it was candidate Trump, uh, who was uh, talking about Vladimir Putin, and uh, and asking Donald Trump. Uh, well, what about all the bad things uh, Putin has done, including uh, suspected of of uh, killing journalists? And candidate Trump uh, said, uh, you know, essentially, so what? We're bad, too. Yeah, I mean, and I remember that, that moment quite well uh, and was quite um, shocking uh, to me, um, you know, in, insofar as that all of our research leading up to this point had told us that presidents essentially or candidates don't say this, that it's, you know, politically, um, you know, problematic for them. Um, I, I think what he was, what he was doing, um, perhaps that, that statement aside, uh, what, he was, what, what he had recognized was, this, you know, a mood within the country, um, you know, a sense that things weren't going as well as they would have liked. And, you know, it wasn't that necessarily that he manufactured that, right? There are some who may say that, but I think that he was recognizing 
that people were fed up that uh, the language of you know established politicians was not you know was not about them, um, and so he was tapping into something that you know at the time nobody else seemed to recognize. And you know, I, I often think about this that um, you know you. I think a lot of people under, uh, underestimate Trump. They still do. Uh, and what was evident from the outset and, and still is today is that this, his communication skills were, were you know, um, quite exceptional. I, he, I think he was recognizing uh, that if he tapped into this, that there would be a base of support. Um, the unique thing about it, too, though, is that in some ways, um, you know, we always talk about American exceptionalism as a unifying notion. And um, he wasn't interested in that. I mean, I don't think um, he, he ever really was in, in the sense of unifying everyone. He was going to sort of build his, his core base of support uh, and ride that through his presidency, which is what we ended up seeing. So Jason Gilmore, um, the, I guess the next part of this uh, strategy is very interesting, and, and we saw it play out. Uh, was, okay, we're a mess right now, America's a mess, and it's the fault of not only the Democrats, it's the fault of Republicans, too. It's the fault of everybody, I guess, but, but me, right? <laughs> as, as, as setting himself up as only I can only I can fix this. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does tee up that, that moment at the um, Republican National Convention in 2016 where he says, nobody knows the system like I. So you see this exceptional, I'm exceptional language, right? Nobody but me knows this system, which is why I alone can fix it. So this is at least version 1.0 of what we call the exceptional me strategy, is that you can see the strategy of it. You can see he tees himself up by saying the country is no longer exceptional. And it can't be anybody but, it can't be anybody from these two parties Right? because they're all swamp creatures taking advantage of America. Um, they're the ones that have ruined it. It's the Bushes and the Clintons and the, all of them, um, which is why me, this outsider, um, exceptional individual, is the only one who can fix it. And so what you were talking about before is, um, or what you had asked me about before, is this language of exceptionalism. I was so trained, or Chuck and I were so trained to, to, to identifying this language of special, of one of a kind, of better than, we started to realize that Donald Trump talks about himself incessantly through this language, right? He's got the best words. He's the smartest person ever. Um, he's got the most uh, successful businesses. His book is number one. It doesn't matter whether this stuff is true or not. His book, his book was never one, number one. You know, it doesn't matter whether this stuff is true or not. But he builds this this notion time and again, um, and that's the thing is through repetition ad nauseum he talks about himself as this exceptional individual, right? So he's building up his credentials. Um, in the eyes of his supporters who are not going to fact-check him about whether what he's saying is true or not, um, to offer himself as the person um, who can make the country exceptional again. Um, you know, and we call it, he, he tries to make himself the master of American exceptionalism. You know, the notion before was that American exceptionalism wasn't something that came and went. It was something that was embedded, infused, um, in the fabric of the nation, right? It's not something that comes and goes. 
It's something that's been here since the beginning of time. And Trump, you know, cracks that open and turns it into something transactional, something that can that can come and go, and something that, according to him, only he can restore. So, Trick Rowling, I wonder if you could expand on that. So, the, what you two gentlemen call the exceptional me strategy, so that now it's focused on him. He's the savior, and, and you reinforce that, as Jason Gilmore was just saying, by superlatives all the time, which I, I think, uh, I believe it comes naturally to Trump. That's, that's, that's what he's done throughout his career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and what, we, what we saw early on, like during the campaign, uh, was that most of those statements, or you know, virtually all of those statements, were about him personally. So they were designed to, you know, as, as Jason had mentioned, to discuss, you know, how his intelligence or his experience or his knowledge or, or what have you uh, were second to none. Um, what, what then happens then is when he, you know, steps into office, is that that language then is adapted to then um, tout his, his, you know, successes as president that these successes, you know, the, the greatest economy in the world, the, the, the biggest and best and, and, and um, you know, most exceptional military in the history of the world, um, is that he, he touts these successes like he had always done, you know, throughout his life when talking about himself. Uh, and that was, that was fascinating to, to witness, that there was this, this transfer to, um, to the same kind of language when he becomes president. Um, you know, so so I think that um, to us that really underscores what we were thinking all along is that this is strategic, this is intentional, um, and again, going back to what I had mentioned before, that people you know underestimate at least his communication skills at their own peril. Uh, he, he, I think he knew what he was doing. I think that he was well aware um, why this may work, and you know the remarkable consistency in the in the discourse is what really stood out to us, um, whether it be in tweets or whether it be in MAGA rallies or whether it be in major presidential addresses, you know, time and time again, he would tout these, these successes. And again, as Jason acknowledged and, and you know, emphasized, the fact is it, it, it didn't matter whether it was true or not. Uh, if you say it enough and, you know, you build that, that base of support, they're, they're going to believe it. Uh, and he, he, would, he would flood the, the, the airwaves as well. I mean, that was a, a major part of the strategy, is if you say these things often enough, and, it, you know, and, and it, a whole range of them, you know, every time you're, you're speaking publicly, there's no way that they can be, um, you know, sort of challenged in any kind of systematic way. So, Jason Gilmore, this, uh, I don't want to belabor this point, but it, it, it's striking mm-hmm. how different this is. And people are reacting uh, with, you know, the old line politicians are just scratching their heads. I'm thinking of the inauguration uh, uh, speech, you know, American carnage and, and President Bush's, former President Bush's reaction. He, he, he's quoted as saying that that was some strange stuff. I've, I've changed President Bush's one word there, but um, th- th- I think that's probably <laughs> the reaction of a lot of the old line politicians. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look into that inaugural address, he's 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 calling out politicians in Washington. Right? His his line in that opening thing is, "We are here," and we'll get into this later. Um, we're here to change things. This will be a presidency like you've never seen. Right? This will be the unique, what we call the exceptional presidency. Right? 
he starts to build this notion that his presidency is unlike any others, right, in a number of different ways. Um, but he's coming in the door, making it clear that um, that uh, Republicans and Democrats alike are are uh, are on alert or should be on alert, right? Um, or you know, be be warned that we're coming for you. Is his kind of line, um, which is interesting to see how he kind of gradually takes over the the Republican Party. But coming in the door, he he starts to uh, to lay out what we call version 2.0 of the exceptional me strategy, which is an adapted strategy for when you're the president, right? So as the president, you can no longer say, well, you you do it to your peril that under your presidency, we're unexceptional, we're a mess, it's, you know, everything's horrible, everything's going badly, well, then people are likely not to re-vote you into uh, to office. And so he starts to change this strategy um, to gradually argue um, that, in fact, the country is becoming exceptional again, um, and it's all thanks to, of course, Donald Trump. Chuck Rowling, uh, so, uh, you know, something like uh, comparing yourself to Abraham Lincoln, which, you know, many people take as laughable, that, but that's of a piece with this strategy, right? Yeah, I mean, this was serious, right? I mean, he, he, he joked, I mean, we, we wrote about this in the book, he, you know, one speech he, he suggested, you know, maybe I should be on Mount Rushmore, maybe I will be one day. And, you know, we, we say in the book, um, given what he, you know, has has said over time, that's no joke. Um, you know, he was, he was, he was being serious, uh, by saying, by saying that. And I think, you know, your, your mention of, of Lincoln, uh, Reagan was another that was brought up routinely, um, you know, in comparison to him. And, and he would, he would at first, I guess, more subtly kind of compare himself to these, you know, these, you know, American heroes, American legends or certainly legends within the Republican party. Um, and uh, and then later, as as his presidency went on, um, he would out and out just si- simply su- suggest that he surpasses them. And and the reason he knows this is people are telling him this. And you know, all indications are that he, he he's probably the greatest president of all time, or at least you know the greatest Republican president of all time. And so um, you know, in some ways, you could say that claims that he makes year three, year four of his presidency. Um, had they been made in year one, um, the reaction may, may not have been the same. But by year three and four, we were so used to it. Uh, there was a desensitization, I think, that happened that, that uh, at that point, you know, claiming that he could be on Rush, should be on Mount Rushmore was no longer sort of crazy uh, to hear from him. Jason Gilmore, I'm, and, uh, this is asking you to get into speculation and psychology, and, uh, you know, you, you can answer this however you will. Uh, how much of this, uh, because the, the, the reports coming out of the White House, at least from former officials, and that, that's a key point, <laughs> officials who resigned and came out, uh, you know, uh, essentially uniformly called him not that bright and uh, certainly uninformed. And uh, uh, so this strategy seems, you know, uh, pretty thought out. Is, 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 do you think this is lucky? It's clever? Um, just... just it, narcissism what uh, what do you think <laughs> um I, I think it's it's heavily strategic i think it's um incredibly smart 
Um, I wouldn't go as, to far, as far as to call him a genius, but um, it, it won him the presidency. Like we, uh, Chuck said this before, and I think it's incredibly important to say again, we or you know, people underestimate him at their peril. Um, so I, it's not so much about um, whether he's intelligent or not. I think certain officials came out of the White House and said these things because he didn't really care about policy and didn't read his briefings and, and you know, um, and he wasn't overly informed as previous presidents were about the, the intricate workings of the nation because all he thought about was his communication strategy. So, sure, maybe he wasn't, uh, and I'm not, I can't speculate, I don't really know whether he was right or not in those areas, but when it comes to communication, um, he is quite strategic and he does it uh, to his benefit, you know, so we could argue that he didn't win the presidency, um, so how effective was it? But he'll, he'll tell you that he won more votes than any other president, any other sitting president in the history of the world. He'll leave out the part about Biden, you know, winning 7 million more uh, votes than him. But uh, uh, it's also, if we look at his stranglehold right now or his, his hold on the, the Republican Party, this stuff resonates with the, the, the base, mm-hmm. and he knows it. Uh, Chuck so, Rowling. Oh, go ahead. I, I can't really. I can't. Uh, yeah, I, I guess at the end of the day, I can't really speculate whether he's smart in all areas or not. But he's definitely smart in strategic political communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck Rowling. Um, uh, to this point, uh, effective strategy, right? I mean, you could argue that, but for the electoral college, he wouldn't have won the presidency. But we do have the electoral college, and he did win the presidency, right? And it is indisputable that he got more votes than any sitting president. Uh, oh, by the way, he lost because, uh, you know, 7 million more people voted for the challenger. Um, but uh, expand on the, the, the effectiveness of this. I guess I, I guess you can definitely point, indisputably, uh, to the continuing hold he has on the base. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I also, I, I would mention, too, you know, another another sort of characteristic that seems to be or a trait that's ascribed to him is, you know, he's undisciplined. Um, and what's remarkable in his discourse and his speeches and, and so on is that he's incredibly disciplined. Uh, and that, again, I think really echoes the idea that it's um, strategic. Um, you know, on this, on this broader impact of Trump, even though he didn't win, you know, re-election, um, it's, it's clear that we could call this a movement. Um, and I think it's quite evident uh, right now, that this isn't going away anytime soon, that a lot of the ideas, um, the approach that he's taken to politics in general is something that is going to be um, emulated, um, tracked, expected by not just his base, but, you know, perhaps others. And so I think what we're witnessing is, you know, something that is going to be, is probably, it, it, well, I think we feel fairly confident saying that this is going to last well beyond his presidency. Um, you know, where it goes, it's, it's anybody's guess, and we're, we're, we're sort of following this as it, as it happens. But, um, you know, I, I guess I would say that the effectiveness of the strategy can, need not be entirely measured by, you know, whether or not he was reelected. I think um, the simple fact, I mean, I'll just say this, that 
the fact that it was as close as it was, given that we had a pandemic like we did, an economic downfall like we did, um, you know, no sitting president stands a good chance of winning re-election under those circumstances. Yet he still made it close. So you could you could also just look at that and say, well, you know, it still was a, a successful strategy. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have uh, more with uh, Jason Gilmore and uh, Chuck Rowling. They're authors of the book Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. More following this. Here they come now. Hear them? Bowling alleys and hair salons seem to be renting out UTVs now. And it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, my goodness. I lost count. At 50. I'm John Kovash. And I'm Josie Kovash. We're the producers of Moab, the undisputed motorhead capital of the West. Tune in to UPR Friday at 10 a.m. It's just been a depressing situation here. What happens when common DNA brings the white and black side of the family together for the first time? We have the same blood in us, but we have different stories. We have a similar history, but real different stories, and that's that's kind of amazing. Discovering America's black DNA. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jason Gilmore, who's an associate professor of global communication at Utah State University, and Chuck Rowling, an associate professor of political science at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Uh, they have written a book. It's out now, Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. And uh, they say that Donald Trump uh, altered this longstanding idea Uh, about American exceptionalism to elevate not the nation, but himself, personally, professionally, politically. They call uh, this Trump's exceptional me strategy, and they document how it made Trump different from every president in modern American uh, history. Uh, So Jason Gilmore, um, Chuck Rowling brought this idea up uh, just at the end of the last segment. I want to uh, have you two gentlemen uh, talk about this. Uh, on the face of it, you would think uh, if you're successful in convincing, uh, you know, a large percentage of Republicans that America is a mess or it was a mess and only one person could could solve it or has uh, made significant progress in solving that, and that's that's Donald Trump, then can this strategy, could this strategy be transferred? Say Donald Trump decides not to run in 2024 but says... Okay, exceptional me strategy is still in effect, but Donald Jr. is the only one. Uh, yeah, I mean, could it be transferred? I think it is. I think it is a difficult discourse uh, in in its entirety to transfer. Um, I'm not sure it's Don Jr. I would think it might be Ivanka, um, who would be um, trying to take over that role from him. And yeah, I think without a doubt. I'm not sure she would use that same discourse. I think Trump might be out supporting a candidacy of his daughter with the same type of language. Um, but one of the things we point out in the book is that, um, you know, at, at the beginning, Trump is at odds with his party, right? He's at odds with the previous, the three previous state bearers, Mitt Romney, um, John McCain, and George W. Bush. He's at odds with all three of them 
going into office. Right? He had come out. He had public feuds with them. Right? So he's going into office at odds with his party. Right? In fact, I, I think many could argue that before this, um, he wasn't actually even a, a Republican. Um, and what a Republican means now might be closer to what Trump is than what the Republicans were before Trump came along. Right? But he's at odds with his party. And, um, but over the four years that he's in the presidency, you see this transformation. Right, that the party of Reagan, the party of American exceptionalism, slowly but surely becomes the party of Trump. Right, and we show in the book that this transformation is quite evident in the fact that they start picking up the same language that he uses in his exceptional me strategy. Right, they start to talk about him as the you know the most successful president in our history. He talks about how they talk about how the. The economy under Trump is the greatest economy ever uh, in the in the history of the nation. Right? They start to to amplify and boost out um, the exceptional me strategy about Donald Trump, and so you see this transformation. And so that has not stopped since he left office. Right? As he starts to make a play for being the to continue to be the standard bearer of the party. That language is still being used. I mean, interestingly, you know, 15 days after Donald Trump loses, he says, if, if, this, uh, if we learned one thing from the election is that your favorite president or that I'm the most popular president in the history of, of the presidency, right? something to that effect. So this language is already uh, transferring into a post-Trump presidency. And we argue in the book that this actually, you know, works to his benefit because he'd much rather be out on the campaign trail than he would like to be in the office dealing with, um, you know, policy wonks that think little of his intelligence. Mm. And this is another illustration that occurs to be that it, uh, what he says and what he incessantly you know, drills into his supporters' minds need not be true, right? He, I'm the most popular president. He never cracked 50% in, yeah. in, in popularity. Rate. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you look at the media universe now, it's nobody's listening to the other side. So we watched, you know, throughout his presidency, the Washington Post and Politico and CNN all had these, you know, massive fact checkers who would fact check everything he said. And none of it was read or, or you know, listened to or, or heard by his base. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're, we're in this fractured media environment where we're just not listening to each other. Yeah. So all of his supporters, all they got was uh, an amplification of it, right? They didn't get fact checkers on Fox News to to challenge what he said. They amplified and 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 repeated what he said. Um, Chuck Rowling, uh, follow up question to this idea of uh, transferability of exceptional meat strategy. So we talked about, uh, you know, you could see maybe with uh, with Trump's blessing. You know, say, hey, Ivanka is now now the one. What about somebody like Senator Hawley or Secretary Pompeo, who clearly want to inherit uh, Trump's voters? Uh, could they use this? And uh, could they use it even against uh, Trump? That's probably unlikely. But but say they had the blessing of Trump. Yeah, I mean, and I I, I do expect that that's what we'll see. Um, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of different potential candidates 
trying to navigate this this new era of politics. And Nikki Haley would be another who has has decided she would you know criticize President Trump or former President Trump for for the insurrection on January sixth. Um, they're all sort of making these calculations. The thing that I would say is that you know n- none of those candidates possesses some of the qualities that Trump does. He's he succeeded in essentially establishing the party of Trump, um, and in some some circles, you know, they refer to it as kind of a cult of personality. And um, the you know the the X factor in all of that is that that individual. So um, sure, Senator Hawley or or any other Pompeo Haley others could you know certainly use this language, right? Talking about. Uh, perhaps they're going to bring up American carnage now after four years of a Biden administration, should they run in 2024. Um, and they may use the same kind of language that Trump used, but, you know, uh, there's a reason why Trump was successful. This is something that he had, this is a, a skill or, that he'd crafted his entire life. None of those, you know, individuals, uh, you know, has done that. So, you know, I'm skeptical, um, but but I will, I will say this, that this sort of... Um, devotion to some sort of leader like this, this emotional appeal and attraction to one individual to solve all of our problems, you know, that's probably not going away. And, you know, had there not been some of these missteps or scandals or the COVID crisis and whatever, uh, you know, he may very well have been reelected. And it does make me wonder, what if we do have someone else? And, you know, from the list of individuals you've identified, I'm not confident that any of them can can succeed or emulate what Trump did. But there may be somebody out there that we're we're not aware of. In fact, I think if if his strategy is is to be uh, repeated, it is going to come from somebody we're just not aware of at this moment. Uh, Jason Gilmore, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'd just like to add something real quick to that, which is that, um, you know, it's quite possible that they will use it, but use it in reference to Trump. You know, I think that's that that might be the problem of of a lot of these candidates is that they're trying to not apply, not appeal to the Republican base. They're trying to appeal to Trump supporters. They're trying to be the new champions of Trump supporters. So they're going to have to sing his praises. So the exceptional me strategy might not come out in regards to Mike Pompeo is the smartest guy in the room. It's Mike Pompeo paying homage to the smartest and greatest president we've ever had to rile up that base and to promise that he will continue the policies of Trump. I think that all gets complicated even further if Trump uh, can effectively um, vie for the candidacy of 2024. Mm-hmm. We just have a few minutes left. Uh, let me start on this one with uh, with Chuck Rowling. Uh, in your epilogue, you have a section titled RIP, American Exceptionalism, question mark. So what about that? What's the future of American exceptionalism? Yeah, well, in you know, I, I think we also mentioned it at different times in the book that you know there have been pundits and and so-called experts and, and scholars over time, especially over the last decade or two, who have made the claim that you know this is the end of American exceptionalism. But I, what I would say is, and I think we're seeing it in um, in the candidacy and presidency of Joe Biden, that it's certainly not dead. Um, it's embedded in much of what he says. Um, uh, and and I, I think, you know, it's strategic. I also think that it's it's traditional. 
but you know, at least in terms of Joe Biden, we're not seeing it go away. Um, and, and, and I would say, I would su- suggest that this is perhaps the um, trajectory of the idea has changed a little bit here uh, with Donald Trump, but I think it's still alive and well, and I think that it will uh, continue on in the future. Um, uh, how we get there, I'm not sure, and, and how the Republican Party reorients itself towards it, uh, that's unclear to me. But I, I, I think it's, it's still there, and I don't think that it's going to die anytime soon. Jason Gilmore, I wonder about you talk in the book about counters to, uh, you know, to uh, exceptional me. For example, uh, you, you remind us Bernie Sanders talked about not me, us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party really looked uh, to counter this, as, as Chuck was talking about. Um, uh, above anybody else, Joe Biden um, tried to champion this idea of we need to take back our leadership role in the world. Right? We need to be exceptional. Um, we need to to claim our exceptional qualities. It wasn't a promise that we need to become exceptional again. It's we need to reclaim that exceptionalism that was always embedded in us. And uh, uh, Chuck actually found this. Uh, uh, one scholar referred to his foreign policy uh uh, approach during the campaign as as make American exceptionalism great again uh, was was Biden's approach to things. And if you look at it, right, he takes this traditional uh, approach to American exceptionalism and uh, wins the presidency. So I think a certain to a certain extent, recognizing and championing the idea that American exceptionalism is is not the territory of one. Um, individual, right? It's, it's not something that only Donald Trump um, can bring or lose, right? Donald Trump told everybody that if you don't reelect me, everything is going to go, you know, the, the stock market's going to plummet, and we're going to go back to that mess, that unexceptional mess uh, that, you know, was here before I took over. Uh, so one, I think, effective counter is, is to, to recognize that American exceptionalism in the eyes of most Americans is not something that has to do with one man, but something that has to do with the nation itself. Um, you know, so I, I would argue that the, the conversation in American politics needs to go in this direction as well, right? Instead of talking about this one man um, who took up all the air in the room for, for five years, is still trying to take up all the air in the room. Um, you know, this, the conversation needs to be about the broader nation, I would argue, to a certain extent, Biden's attempting to do that. Um, whether that's effective or not depends on whether Fox News and the, uh, you know, Huffington Posts and MSNBCs of the world also pick up those narratives. We just have a, a one minute left, uh, so Chuck Rowling will give you the last word. What's uh, what? What's your biggest takeaway from this study? Wow, well, that's that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, and an important one. I mean, I, I would say that what began as sort of a, an observation of this unique candidate with a unique way of talking about himself and the nation uh, has, you know, started a potentially a, a long-term um, change in, in how we, we think about those things. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we have to be looking at these dynamics and, and with a long view. Uh, we get in this bubble. Um, we think about the day to day and the back and forth. And you know, for for Jason and I, we've been writing about this for 
the better, you know, for, for over 10 years, um, we expect there to be something entirely new in four or five years uh, when it comes to these concepts, and I'm sure we'll be writing about it. Well, we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, the book is out, Exceptional Me, How Donald Trump Ex- Exploited the Discourse of American Exceptionalism. Jason Gilmore is an associate professor of global communication at Utah State University, and Chuck Rowling is associate professor of political science at University of Nebraska at Kearney. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me with you. Thank you, and thanks for listening today thank to you. Access Utah. On March 14th, yes, that's 3.14, we're going to be celebrating Pi Day with Lucky Slice Pizza, and we're inviting you to join us for a special drive through event. We'll be handing out a free piece of Lucky Slice Pizza to the first 250 people starting at noon on March 14th. All you need to do is drive through the UPR parking lot, and we'll hand you a slice of pizza pie through your car window. Don't forget to mask up and head to upr.org for more details. We hope to see you there. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.